everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am absolutely thrilled to say we are joined by Congressman Eric Swalwell. He has represented California's 15th district in Northern California since 2013. He serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the House Judiciary Committee. He chairs the Intelligence, Modernization, and Readiness Subcommittee. He's co-chair of the Democratic Steering and Policy Committee. Congressman Swalwell, welcome. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Of course, of course. Thanks for having me on. Now, I have to wish you a happy belated 40th birthday, which... I noted, because I remember when you were elected, I'm about five months older than you, and you really, I deeply resent you for this, because you gave me a, what the blank am I doing with my life moment? If it makes you feel better, I have, over the last few years, chaired an organization called Future Forum, where we sought to recruit and bring into Congress the next generation of members, and you know, kind of victims of our own success in that that organization has about 40 members. A good chunk of them are younger than I am. And so I'm like the old man sitting on the porch, you know, shouting, get off my lawn to all these, you know, youngsters who are coming in. So yeah, they're about to put me out to pasture in that group. That makes me feel not one bit better, but I appreciate that you're doing that. And I appreciate the story. What has most surprised you about being a member of Congress? You know, when I walk from my office to the Capitol, if it's too cold outside, you can take a tunnel and you walk through this tunnel and you see artwork from every district in America. And it's a high school art contest. And each member gets to put one piece of art every year on the wall. And you walk by Texas and you know Wyoming and California and New York, and you see the different pieces of art. And it just reminds me how different the country is. Sometimes you don't even need to know what state it is. You can just tell looking at the art, you know where the art came from. And that's, to me, been the biggest surprise is that we need, you know, a a diverse country, people from Cheyenne and Omaha and Tulsa and New York City and the Bay Area to somehow come together and find consensus on issues that a lot of people don't agree on in, in different parts of the country. So to me, you know, just recognizing how hard it is and how long it takes to get a lot of these things done, uh, in part because of how big of an organization it is, 435 people, in part because of just how diverse the country is. I'm really impatient. And so that's been the biggest adjustment for me is that these issues take a lot of, a long time. I remember when I first got to Congress, one of the first persons I met was uh, John Dingell, you know, the dean of the Congress, longest serving person ever in Congress. And uh, by the time I'd come to Congress, uh, he had been in a wheelchair and he was on the floor and I was eager to go up and introduce myself. And I leaned down, I almost took a knee to, to talk to him. And he looked at me and he said, you can stand up straight when you're talking to me. <laughs> like he didn't want special treatment. And he said, what did you do before you came here? I said, well, Mr. Dingle, I was a, uh, a prosecutor. Uh, and he said, did you like that job? I said, yes. And he said, what did you like about it? I said, I liked that I got closure uh, on the cases that I worked on, that I could put everything into a case and I and the victim would get closure. And he looked at me and he said, do you know how long I've been working on Medicare for all? And I said, no, sir. He said, over 50 years. You're not going to get closure here. (laughs) So that was just kind of a uh, real fresh take, a reality check for me on uh, what was in store. So maybe not the warm embrace that you had mentioned, (laughs) but some real real world feedback. Now, you mentioned- 
Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Great advice to be patient. Now, you mentioned that you are a prosecutor. We just found out very recently that California Governor Gavin Newsom has another position to fill, that of state attorney general. You served as a district attorney for a number of years. Are you comfortable answering if you have any interest in this particular position? I, I love my job, uh, Jessica, and no, I'm, I'm not seeking it. But if the governor asked, uh, you know, as, as to who would be a good candidate, I, I certainly know of some talented lawyers who I serve with. And, you know, I, I hope he at least considers uh, some of them. But uh, right now, love my job and uh, going to stay focused on the issues, uh, particularly around gun violence that uh, led me to Congress. Now, gun violence is something that you talked about in another job that you did try out for, and very few people in the world ever get to run for president. And you did. And I'm wondering if you, not the obvious question of what made you run and what did you want to do, because I know you talked a lot about gun violence, which you just mentioned, and I can suspect why you ran. But what is it like actually saying, I'm going to run for president, and then trying to, right before the pandemic hits, crisscross the nation, what's the experience like? If we were sitting next to you at a dinner party and I said, what is it like to run for president? It's very humbling, um, especially uh, when you have to exit for uh, president. But, you know, I ran because I was inspired by the people who helped us win the House in 2018. Uh, they ran on generational issues. 29 of the people who won uh, were in their 40s and under. And so I thought it was an opportunity for a next generation case to be made uh, for the White House. But, I, you know, I, I did find uh, out on the trail that there was a lot of excitement about my candidacy and Mayor Pete's candidacy and Beto's candidacy and, you know, some of the younger candidates who ran. But there was also anxiety over risking a second Trump term. And uh, as one person told me, rolling the dice on a, a younger candidate. And, and so I got that. I, I I heard that early and it didn't surprise me at all that the three remaining candidates uh, at the end were the most experienced candidates. I think that reflected, you know, voters who really uh, wanted to respond to Donald Trump's inexperience and corruption uh, with a you know seasoned hand and somebody who could you know restore everyone's faith in government. And so um, that was my experience, but I loved it. Uh, you know, as a, a father of two young kids, it was, that was a challenge because my wife uh, works full time and I don't think I put in as many hours as you need to, you know, effectively take off. But I also wasn't willing to, you know, give up more hours uh, with the kids. So loved every part of it. My doctor says it's out of my system. So um, we'll go from there. Out of your system forever. <laughs> I hope. We'll keep this uh, podcast, Congressman, and uh, we'll refer back to it, and we'll and, and we'll see. <laughs> now, one thing about being a member of Congress, not running for president, but being a member of Congress is you have short terms. And I, I wonder if it feels like you're always running and what percentage of your time do you have to spend fundraising? Yeah, it, it does feel like you're always running. And, you know, that was intentional. That's, you know, how the founders uh, wrote the constitution for a house that was always responsive to the, you know, the changing passions of the people and a, a Senate that was uh, on a six year term, and could be more deliberative and, and somewhere between the two, you know, if they collaborated, uh, you could really, you know, find uh, the soul of the country. Um, so I, I get why it is that way. I don't think the founders envisioned two things that have corroded our politics, which are partisan gerrymandering 
and the dirty money that comes into politics, especially, you know, outside super PAC money. So if we are able in every state to get rid of um, partisan gerrymandering and do what we do in California, which is independent uh, redistricting, and then also, uh, you know, get rid of uh, super PACs, you know, essentially overturn the Citizens United uh, decision or have a constitutional amendment uh, that would get rid of it. I think, you know, you wouldn't see members spend so much time uh, fundraising. I, you know, it, it, Frankly, it varies um, just week to week uh, as far as the pressures on your time, but it's it's more time uh, than I want. And I think, you know, if it's an hour a week, that's more time than I can be spending, especially in a pandemic on the issues of my constituents. But I'm also mindful that my colleagues uh, or my, yeah, especially my Republican colleagues are, you know, they're getting support from people like Sheldon Adelson, the Koch brothers, and folks who will just dump millions of dollars into these races and if they prevail, that changes people's lives. And so, you know, I, had, I can't just say that, well, I wish I didn't have to do fundraising. I'm not going to do fundraising. I you know, have to do that so I can fight for the people who need me there. But the promise I make is that I will consistently vote for publicly financed campaigns. I'll vote to strip down to the studs, the Citizens United ruling, and also vote to have independent redistricting. So I think this, you just answered my next question, which is, you're a member of Congress, you're looking around, you're mindful of what the founders had envisioned, and you're mindful of the fact that Congress does not have great approval ratings right now. So what would you do? And I think maybe your first two answers are try and incentivize states to implement independent redistricting to reduce gerrymandering, because as we know, the Supreme Court is not going to help out and say that judges have any role to play when it comes to partisan gerrymandering and then reduce the influence of money in politics. Do you have a a number three and four? If you look at the Congress as an institution, not necessarily a legislative goal, but how Congress functions, are there other things that you would like to implement? Yeah. As I also said, uh, you know, publicly financed campaigns um, and, and really, you know, giving citizen, every citizen uh, essentially democracy dollars is a, concept that my colleague John Sarbanes has recommended where, you know, you would have, you know, a certain amount of publicly financed dollars that you could contribute to a campaign, you know, cap the limits of uh, what can be spent uh, on campaigns. Um, there's, I think there's a lot that we could do that would allow us to focus more on just, you know, collaborating. But, you know, Jessica, what's so fascinating to me is that when you look at public polling on issues, the American people have found consensus on climate and that climate chaos is happening and we should do something about it. They found consensus on healthcare in that, you know, it should be affordable and accessible to everybody. They found consensus on background checks and that we should have them in firearms purchases. And they found consensus on the DREAM Act, that uh, if you were brought here, no fault of your own by your parents, uh, you should be able to become a citizen. But in Congress, we're nowhere near you know, finding and acting on that consensus. And, and I think you have to look at, you know, the structural issues that prevent us from getting to where the American people are. And, and I, I really do believe dirty maps and dirty money uh, are two of the biggest culprits. A follow-up only because I started my career teaching campaign finance. Public financing seems to me to be a fantastic idea in a world in which you don't have unlimited independent expenditures, in which you don't have unlimited super PACs. Are you worried about creating a system of public financing, but creating it in our current post-Buckley, post-Citizens United world where 
you can have one person or one corporation or one nonprofit that might even mask its true donors come in and just spend unlimited amounts of money. And the Supreme Court has said that's protected under the First Amendment. You're absolutely right. And, and I wouldn't want to do one without doing uh, the other because you're right. You would essentially, um, especially for members of Congress or candidates who didn't have a, a super PAC on their behalf, you would really make it difficult for them to run uh, for Congress. And so I would not want to see that happen. So I, I do think you have to do both. And you're right. The unintended consequences, just having public financing, but not addressing the Citizens United issue uh, would make things worse. Uh, so that leaves us in this unfortunate setting where, you know, as you mentioned, members of Congress spend way too much time having to fundraise and not enough time connected to the people they serve. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about another way in which members of Congress may or may not be connected to the people they serve. And that's, for me, what was most surprising about the Trump administration, which is not how President Trump behaved, but how elected members of Congress and members of the Senate behaved. And particularly the fact that the guardrails did not hold. And so from my perspective, I don't understand what your view of the rule of law or your view of science or your view of whether or not there's something like massive voter fraud when there clearly isn't. I don't understand why that has become a proxy for partisan affiliation. And I have the outsider's view. You have the insider's view. I'm wondering if you can help us understand how is it that these questions, which seem to have nothing to do with whether or not you're a conservative person or a progressive person or a liberal person or a moderate person, how has that, all of these questions become a proxy for, are you a registered Dem or a registered Republican? It's, it's incredibly frustrating. My wife and I just finished the most recent season of The Crown, and they cover uh, in, in great texture and, and detail uh, Margaret Thatcher. And you see in, in the in the series, uh, you know, her conservative policies, uh, especially cutting budgets, uh, cutting services to people. And you see kind of the, the human toll that takes uh, because of what she did. But you also see a very principled person that, you know, she believed in that philosophy because that's how she was raised. And it was very much a pull yourself up by the bootstraps mindset. I don't believe in that at all. But I did tell my wife uh, after one of the episodes, I said, you know, Give me Margaret Thatcher as the oppositional party leader. You know, I, I would rather work with that, where you have a principled, educated, passionate leader, but not corrupt. And right now, I don't for a second think that there's a single guiding principle when it comes to policies that Donald Trump lives by. And I don't think that's the case for most of the people who now enable him. And so he makes up kind of the new truth of the day. And sometimes, most times, it contradicts what the truth of the day was yesterday or the day before. And you just go with it. And that's not even, you know, cowardice. That That's just, I think, straight out corruption. You know, they're doing that because they see it as benefiting uh, themselves and keeping themselves in power. And, and that's that's incredibly frustrating because we're, these are not ideology debates that we're having right now. This is essentially a, a cult leader who they are following because they're afraid if they don't follow, uh, they lose their job. And so they are putting their jobs above everything else. Uh, and they're putting themselves essentially then above everyone else. And 
until that changes, yeah, that's that's a very sad state of affairs for a democracy. So we're recording this episode before President-elect Biden becomes President Biden. According to the Washington Post, just 27 congressional Republicans acknowledge Biden's win, which I hate to say it, in my mind is akin to saying, you know, I'll withhold judgment on gravity. And I know everybody's going to read that as a partisan statement, but if you hear what I said, it actually has nothing to do with my views on any policy issues. So- I guess I already asked you kind of what the blank is going on. And you said that, you know, people are worried about losing their jobs. So let's move forward. Let's look forward as we end our discussion and say, how can President Biden change what has happened? It seems to me like once you look behind the stage and you see that this is how we all behave, it's very hard to put the curtain back and pretend like this hasn't happened. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when a discussion about Democrats and Republicans was a discussion about your views on tax policy and the environment and business regulations. And it wasn't about whether or not you believe that non-existent voter fraud is something that we should talk about or support. So if President Biden said to you, you know, Congressman Swalwell, what should I do to heal this country? What should I do to lead us forward? Do we just have to clean house? Do we have to have a national discussion? What can we do? I do think he has to show the country he is seeking to unite us. And and he may not unite everyone in the country. He may not, he may only unite 60% of the country. But there are many Republicans who have broken ranks, you know, with the president. Not many who are serving in office right now, but you do see like the governor of Maryland, the governor of Massachusetts, John Kasich, the former governor of Ohio. Those may not be people in another time that we would want to necessarily work with, but this is the time that we find ourselves in, and those are the types of people I think that Joe Biden should try and find consensus on for the sake of the country to show that He is trying to govern and and move the country out of this Trump hell uh, that we're in. And I think the country will appreciate that. And and he doesn't have to bring along the Trump voter who won't wear a mask, denies COVID, denies Biden as the president-elect. He shouldn't alienate that person. He shouldn't insult that person and make things worse. But he really needs to bring along, I think, the great big center of the Republican Party who has broken away and seek to work with them first. I, I, I think that is where the opportunity is. And I think that's why Joe Biden was elected president uh, by such a large 7 million vote margin is because people know that's who he is, that 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 has defined his 47 years in office is a belief that he can work, you know, across the aisle and, and be successful. And people were yearning for that uh, when it was compared to what the alternative was. Congressman Swalwell, we've learned a lot from you. I'm going to end with the same three questions I ask all of my guests to learn a little bit more about you. So here is the first question. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? You know, I I think it would have to be um, recently passed John Lewis. I, I got to know him pretty well. There's still so much I wanted to ask him. And he was so generous with his time. He would give anyone his time, but he's been through so much on behalf of our country and he never lost, you know, his optimism and always had a belief that doing right uh, would pay off. So uh, I'd like one last dinner with uh, my pal, John Lewis. 
and hopefully a fruitful discussion of voting rights, which we so desperately need in our country. Question two of three, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal with you. What is it? Uh, A burrito from Los Pericos in my, uh, a super burrito from Los Pericos. Uh, It's a taqueria uh, in my district. I've I've been going there since I was a uh, middle schooler. Um, it's right around the corner from my middle school and high school. So that was always the lunch spot and, uh, still is my favorite, you know, you need a meal quick, uh, that'll fill you up. This is a true California answer. I will say <laughs> last question. You get one superpower for an hour. What is it and why? Oh boy. Um, especially right now in the pandemic, give everyone a, a full belly. Uh, you know, I, I, I just, heartbroken by the food lines, the record food lines. And I, I've been helping some of the food banks and um, it's crushing. And I, I keep my DMs open at Rep Swalwell on Twitter and, you know, just hearing the stories of people uh, who are rationing food or never imagined they'd have to go to a food bank before and are now. Um, so yeah, if it's just one hour uh, of a full belly, that, uh, that'd be a good hour, better than where we are right now. Congressman Swalwell, I thank you for keeping yourself accessible, keeping your DMs on Twitter open, and for mentioning the fact that we're facing a true humanitarian crisis. The last uh, number I saw was that one in six families in America suffers with food insecurity. One in six is an astonishing and incomprehensible, and um, it's a number that we should never tolerate. And I thank you for mentioning that. As we go into the holidays, and I truly thank you so much for your time and for passing judgment with us. Of course. Well, thank you, Jessica, for uh, the podcast and inviting me on. You can find Congressman Swalwell, as he just said, on Twitter at Rep Swalwell. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod. We want to thank all of our listeners for your support. We are doing great in the numbers and so thankful for all of you. And we will see you next time.